Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 457. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I'd also like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review for the show to Emily on Apple Podcasts. This week's interview is with Oliver Berkman. Oliver's a journalist who wrote the long-running column for The Guardian, This Column Will Change Your Life. He was the winner of the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award and has been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. Beyond blogging and his imperfectionist newsletter, Oliver has also written several best-selling books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. His last book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It, Embrace Your Limits, Change Your Life, is a runaway success. We discuss his book, The Essence of Enough, Cosmic Insignificance, and How to Make the Most of Your Life on This Planet. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Oliver. Oliver Berkman, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for responding to my request to have you on. I got, got, the, got the idea of this thanks to listening to the wonderful Sam Harris uh, and and what a lovely chat that was. And then um, the other day I was in an Amazon four-star books book well, store and lo and behold, Oliver Berkman, 4,000 weeks, embrace your limits, change your life, top of the trending books in real life. So bravo. Very happy Oliver. to hear that. Wow, yeah, thank you. Ab- absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, tell us in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself and the work that you do? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm an author and a journalist, journalist and an author. I don't know, doing less journalism and more authoring these days. Um, At the Guardian newspaper? I was for a very long time. I was on the staff of the Guardian for a long time, then on contract. Now I do contribute um, uh, here and there, but I'm I'm not sort of officially uh, a staff member there or anything. The world of journalism has changed a whole lot, would you not say? (laughs) Certainly has, yeah, yeah. Oh, my very earliest days at the Guardian, the internet was there, but it was a terminal in the corner of the newsroom that you could go and use if you needed to be on the internet for uh, five minutes and no one else was on the internet at that point. So you, you've written several books, Oliver, uh, and I would imagine that this is the most successful, but I don't know that. Uh, 4,000 Weeks, it's really, it's, an, it's a tremendous read. Um, and I like I have written a few books, I, I often found myself looking at myself as I wrote the book, and specifically I wrote a book about empathy, because I think that's a, a core key talent or skill to have in today's world. And then the problem was, well, I actually, I realized that I'm not always empathic, and, and I need to improve myself. And I was thinking, to what extent, and, and you did talk about this a little bit on the Sam Harris show, uh, you wrote the book to solve your own uh, productivity delusion. Oh, I mean, completely. I think the only thing that I pride myself on in this subject matter that you've introduced here is being honest about it. I don't think that I necessarily 
am more than a stepper to ahead on understanding this stuff than the people I'm I'm writing for. I am absolutely not free on a day-to-day -day basis of the sort of struggles around these areas. I think struggling with them is what makes them of interest to me and makes me a person who can say something useful about them. So yeah, the main thing I really hope I manage in this book, at least on that topic, is just to um, is just to be open about the fact that I'm writing this for myself as much as for anybody else. I think that's probably true of all books in any kind of advice genre. Um, I just think it's not always necessarily honestly acknowledged by the authors of them. Because um, you, you'd think it might detract from the... I can see how you might think it would detract from the, the value of a book to sort of admit that you're someone who struggles with this stuff. I actually don't think that's true at all. And as a reader would far rather... Uh, read something by somebody who uh, you know is invested in that way instead of somebody who claims to have had it all worked out there's a far greater attraction in imperfection in in authenticity in i mean ulti ultimately underneath that is what our instincts lead us to is to to say well this person is real they actually you know have struggled with it themselves and that i can relate to because if they're a bloody perfectionist and they just you just got to do this you know yeah. well huh. so there's two yes you get two two things ways it can go wrong one is that somebody uh, has always found something incredibly easy uh, and and if, and that kind of person is not they shouldn't be writing about that thing they should be writing about whatever it is that they've they've struggled with um try and think of something that I'm just always been naturally good at, like, I don't know, spelling. That would be so boring. I could never bring myself to write. You know, a spelling to... <laughs> bee in the closet. <laughs> I mean, that's just not a, that's just not of interest. And it's not of interest, I think, partly because uh, it always came easily to me. And then you get the other problem, which is that people do struggle, the right, an author does struggle with it, but, but they're not quite being honest with themselves. I'm sure in some ways I'm still being not fully honest with myself, but, you know, they're sort of, they're trying to um, fix their own problems by advising other people. And that's when you get these strange self-help books where people recount sort of having a huge breakdown and a moment and a crisis and then digging themselves out of it by becoming a self-help guru, which always strikes mm. me as a really strange dynamic because surely what you should do is learn from the crisis and then later become the self-help guru. You shouldn't dig yourself out of a crisis by telling other people how to dig themselves. Right. Out of it gets very meta. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. All sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. But at the same level, I mean, I, I did, I read the book thinking that it was a, that, that, that it's about finding yourself too. And at the level that you find yourself, then you can dedicate your 4,000 weeks to that self as opposed to some sort of other adopted or forced position or self that society, your parents have pushed on you and you, you're running down some sort of other path until you find yourself, then the 4,000 weeks now finally make sense. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I don't tend to, I have not tended to think in, in specifically in terms of, you know, being yourself being who you were meant to be although that is a strong current in the kind of Jungian thinking that that has definitely influences this book in part but I do think you know that's just another way I think of talking about like being in reality being um, not spending our lives as we do to such a great extent you know trying to 
emotionally avoid the experience of reality, but facing up to reality. And that is things like how limited time is and the fact that you can't control other people. But it is also things like you have the personality traits that you have and you have the skills that you have and you and you have the struggles and the neuroses that you have. So it is absolutely about sort of being yourself rather than trying to build ways of avoiding that truth. Yeah, I think absolutely. I um I detected the 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 Heidegger component of of really being in yourself and 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 the activity of being you is you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for all Heidegger all the caveats that come with uh with with Heidegger, he is in the book and um and I think it as I understand his often impenetrable prose um and the many secondary text by academics that I relied upon. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's this, it, it's, it's pointing, it's pointing to this way, it's a difficult thing to express, but pointing to this way in which we spend so much of our time in one way or another, flinching from the way things are, and what, what, and who we are, finding ways to feel comfortable instead of authentic. And, and I think we do that my focus in the book obviously is the way we do that with respect to our time all sorts of things that pass as time management advice or productivity advice i think are actually ways of sort of um uh cushioning ourselves from from you know the the real and of course the irony is that the more that you can confront how things are in terms of your limited time your limited control all the rest of it it's actually incredibly empowering it's not it's not a recipe for um nihilism or despair it's like that that's the first step in doing the most interesting and meaningful and exciting things with your life yeah yeah but, i see yeah. i mean i i definitely cottoned on to the, the the fact and i and i tend to agree with you that the time management processes that we subscribe to tend to focus on the doing uh what what are you going to do how quickly can you do it the efficiencies and effectiveness and it and it obviates or gets or doesn't take into account the bigger picture. I mean, oftentimes it sort of gets you focused on the granular tasks that you need to do, which is doing. It's great. You're being you doing these things. But if you haven't connected into some bigger sense of you and I, I kind of felt like when you your penultimate chapter about cosmic insignificance, um, which is something I highly relate to. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking at some level, your book, Oliver, is, is a call for higher consciousness. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is. Yeah, I, I think that w there's a there's a thing that I hope I'm doing in the book all the way through, really, which is which is about making things conscious. So it's less about saying, instead of living your life this way, live your life that way. But it's about saying, notice that these things are unavoidably true about our situation as limited humans and when you notice that that is a huge leap because then you can use what capacity you do have for directing your life and making things happen that you want to happen you can use it the most fruitfully so the obvious example is just that you know and i'm not the only person to have made this point everything you ever do in the course of a day or with a or with a month or a year like every choice every time you do something you are choosing not to do an infinite number of other things, closing off an infinite number of other possibilities. And 
there is no option but to choose and you're already choosing so when i say things like you know when i'm in this book when i'm talking about you know confronting tough choices i'm not saying there's a way of life that involves not choosing and there's a way of life that does involve choosing choose the latter i'm saying you have to choose you're already making tough choices with how you use your time but you weren't necessarily doing it consciously you weren't necessarily living in that mind space where where you see that that's what you're you're doing because it's uncomfortable to face up to it but there are great rewards to doing it more consciously i hope that mm. makes sense well it does i'm following you oliver I'm, I'm, i love this rabbit hole because it, it well first of all i i wanted to cite a french saying which follows exactly what you say which is choisir c'est renoncer to choose is to not to choose other things right. and it's and i absolutely think it's strategic that we need to think about our lives strategically otherwise we just sort of go with the flow so you do need to act into things and um and then this idea of awareness of ourselves so you can get the sort of understanding of who you are, but just like you were talking with Sam, um, who I don't know, I just call him Sam, um, but just like you were talking with him, uh, you're aware, but how aware of, of you are you? What is it that you're aware of? Mm -hmm. The difference between the body, the brain, the mind, and this notion of, of true honesty, like you were saying at the very beginning. I'm trying to be honest with myself. I'm trying to be authentic, but are we ever a hundred percent and anyway what is a hundred percent right no i mean and then there's that paradox about being honest about how you're not being fully honest i mean yeah again to sort of drag it back to my own particular neuroses and fixations with time management and productivity and things like that i'm aware all the time still to this day of falling into this pattern of thinking that you know if i could only wrangle all these tasks if i could only get to the end of my inbox if i could only do this this and this that i would achieve some kind of some kind of peace of mind that is deeply sort of existential you know that is that is that is true uh peace of mind and and i think that notion which is obviously one of the central ones i'm trying to challenge in the book that we need to sort of conquer reality in this way in order to feel at peace with reality and how we never actually will get there so it's kind of a recipe for constant uh, ceaseless <laughs> dissatisfaction i mean i find the way it works in my mind now is not that i never fall into that but that i much more quickly see what i'm doing and yeah. see the old patterns and there's a lot of freedom in being able to see them rather than some kind of self-help project of um eradicating them completely i mean this way of thinking i think will be familiar to anybody who has any experience of like sort of longish term therapy for example that's what all that all that stuff is about yeah you know, the idea of not not sort of or at its best i would say it's about seeing what you're doing and getting freedom from it in the seeing rather than sort of overnight total personality transformations or anything well, like it's much like meditation when you you your brain goes off and then oh oh my brain has gone off you know gone off somewhere yeah right and then and you feel that moment that's the magical moment actually and you can wheel it back at least you are aware that you yep. went off yep. now you're back peace breathing breathing oh go off again oh yep. god there i am and and it's that capturing the aha back in right and so in in uh, in a lot of what you 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 talk about towards the end uh, and where I think that's where you refer to Heidegger, but this idea of accepting your finitude, mm -hmm. 
your end. And um, on the one hand, I also 100% subscribe to this, having been a long-term fan of a rock and roll group called the Grateful Dead, whose absolute philosophy, uh, or one part of their big philosophy is, you, once you recognize you die, you are grateful for being present. Right. And that is absolutely part of their philosophy. And I think that it's a, it's a wonderful. Album, but now it makes sense from their name now that you say it. Yeah, yeah and I could, I could wax on about it. But the, so the idea of your finitude, and I can't help but think that the existential crisis that we have been going through around this world throughout this pandemic is absolutely an inacceptance of our finitude wanted you to react to that thought. You mean the sort of psychological consequences? Societal. Right. Societal, the, the, uh, generally speaking, I feel like society has moved to a place where death is something you put away. It's dealt with over there. You, the old people, let's put them in an old person's home. Yeah. Uh, death, let's clean it up, let's not show it. Uh, we're, we're scared about it, it's gonna trigger people. Uh, we, we're, we're infinite. If we can, we're going to go and transform ourselves with some super hydro therapy, mm -hmm. uh, cryogenic, this and that, to, to, to live forever. And, and all of a sudden there's this virus coming around. Uh, oh, it turns out it kills people. Oh my God, that's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Yet we all know we have to die. And, and I yeah. feel like that, that is, there's a hugely existential component to what's going on. And that lack of accepting, in my opinion, of finitude has been the biggest provocation and challenge we have to, we have to face. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think this is probably truer now at this stage of things than it, than it maybe was earlier on, I think. And I write about the early stages of lockdown in the book, actually, though, sort of not that it was a not that it was a good time, certainly not, but that there were sort of things that we learned about ourselves in that period of, of sort of when lockdown was a sort of uh, widely, there was a wide consensus for that, when there was a large sense of sort of gratitude toward frontline healthcare workers, when people were really looking out for their elderly neighbours. There was a moment in that process where I think we were maybe more in touch with our limitations in a way but but yeah definitely i mean in terms of this in in terms of some of the ways that i see people sort of um i see those ideas now spinning off in less healthy ways people who um this i mean you could see like the great contrast between covid zero and learning to live with endemic covid you could see in that the distinction between this idea that there could be total human conquest of troublesome organisms that threaten us versus versus a um a, a need to sort of coexist i think um yeah i mean there's all sorts of all sorts of stuff is out there and it's difficult because obviously you know this is a sort of there are distinctive things about this threat to to life you don't want to sort of say well hey we have to die sometime, so who cares? Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I've been really struck by the inability of people on all sides of the political spectrum. It seems to me, sounding superior to them by saying this, but <laughs> to, make, to think in terms of uh, sort of 
balancing of trade-offs and opportunity costs and upsides and downsides. So on the one hand, you have sort of um, you have people who I think are wrong to um, be against the vaccines because there hasn't been a total perfect there's a total perfect knowledge that in 10 years time they won't have had negative effects on us or something it's like they're good on the basis of the science that we have on the other hand the other end of the political spectrum uh you have people who 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 seem to think that we have to pursue policies that will bring the deaths from covid down to zero even though that leads to deaths from other causes that they're not factoring into their to their calculations so i mean yeah this this idea that everything is a big imperfect mess that anything we do is going to have a downside um and it's just a question of trying to stumblingly sort of figure out which are the which problems we want to have um and then you know what 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 that means for uh, you know the fact that some people are going to end up on the losing side of it i mean that whole way of thinking seems very alien to a lot of people they really want to have um extreme clarity like we should do absolutely everything it takes to eliminate covid or we should do absolutely nothing because uh personal freedom is the only value to consider and blah 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 you know right or, very absolutist yeah yeah it strikes me that politics democracy is partly uh, uh, let's say part of this the cause of this because people in politics are doing that to get elected mm -hmm. so there's a time frame back to this notion of time that will dictate how I spend my time and what I vote on. And if you say black, I'll say white. Mm -hmm. And if you say red, I'll say blue, because that's what we do. And talk about being on a track that is time bound. And, and rather than thinking big picture, 4,000 weeks kind of image of politicians, they have to think, well, how am I going to get elected in the next by-election? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that the time aspect of of uh, political motivations is fascinating. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, because you don't want to give these people 25 year terms in office. But on the other hand, when you give them short terms of office, uh, those those incentives are really warped as well. Yeah. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So in one of the pieces, as I said, I listened to it, so I didn't go back and write down what you wrote, but I, this is what I, I, I think you said, yeah. and, and please correct me and rebuff me and so on. <laughs> but you wrote at one point um, that abandoning hope is liberating. And I was like, "Whoa, that was really tough for me." I, I you know, I look at hope as as a as a light at the end of the tunnel, as something to push for, as opposed to fear, mm -hmm. which is our predominant thing. But then, as I remember it, you you write about, well, actually, it's abandoning hope of ever being in control, hope that this is just a dress rehearsal, that there is life after death. 
uh, is that qualify me and comment? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. There's definitely a. I mean, this is something that some other people have sort of objected to, and I think there's certainly definitely a semantic issue going on. Not not particularly interestingly um, that you know hope can mean different things. I think that more substantively, what I'm trying to say is that um, putting or investing all your sort of uh faith in the future instead of in the present in thinking that um you know what makes the moment what makes the present okay is that things are heading towards a time when it will be better is a is a troublesome way to relate to the the present moment it might be totally forgivable for people you know in servitude or deep poverty uh it might there might be forms of it that are just kind of happy low-key optimism nothing wrong with that uh don't want to stop people being optimists but if you're thinking you know um the reason that i'm spending my days doing a job i don't like is because i've got this hope that it's going to lead somewhere that it's that's going to be good or if you're thinking you know there are all these problems in the world but then but the next generation we can rely on the 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 next the kids to sort this out later or something like anything like that or the kind of hope that yeah politicians are going to use an awful lot which is this idea that you know i can lead you from this these dark times to happier ones it has this effect of like a quick derek jensen the environmentalist in the book you're sort of you're giving away your power maybe to some other people maybe to the government maybe to the future maybe to yourself in the future right you're, you're taking away from that capacity to say, well, here I am right now. And in some ways things are going in a good direction. In some ways it looks like they're going in a terrible direction. And this is what we have. So now let's see what we can do with it. Well, uh, Oliver, that uh, now I, I, I love how you express that because at the end of the day, something else I, I often say is hope is not a strategy. <laughs> right. And, and what you were talking about, it brings up something that Dan Pink talks about, which um, feels like having autonomy uh, so to the agency to be yourself as opposed to leave it to others, you know, to the wind tomorrow or to the government to do. Yeah. What can you do with your own sense of self uh, around some kind of, you know, hopefully some mastery of some talent to do and achieve and, and get through the struggle? Because at the end of the day, basically, as I see it, when you... And I think that's something you were talking about when you talk about the challenge of committing to marriage, mm -hmm. that it's actually about also not only accepting our finitude, but life is shit and life is full of challenges. And, and that's what you need to commit to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is this idea of it's it's this subtle distinction for me anyway, between two different senses of acceptance right it's not accepting that bad things in your life or your society must always remain that way it's about accepting that they are that way right now and not sort of engaging in this inner flinch that that has to do with not not sort of f facing it and yeah and then seeing that that all sorts of these things are just the inevitable flip sides of um you know they come with engaging in life i love this um there's a psychotherapist called bruce tift who i quote a couple of times in the book and it's somewhere else not in not in the quotes there um 
he talks about the sort of challenges of marriage and relationship and you know to sign up for any kind of long-term relationship even a friendship you know is to sign up for more suffering on some level because you're you know becoming vulnerable in the presence of somebody else so you're going to wind each other up in certain ways you're going to start to care about this person so it's not when bad things happen to them it'll be like a little bit like they're happening to you and so you've got more sadness in your life you know there's all these negatives but they're completely essential um that they're non-negotiable negatives if you're going to get the 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 upside they just come together and um tift has this wonderful thing he says about how he never experiences any problems in his marriage now anymore but only because he doesn't define the experience of uh emotional disturbance being wound up as a problem he just he just that that's just part of being human and once you don't see that as a problem then the fact that your partner is going to you know press your buttons every day and you're going to be doing the same to them is can be seen as just you know part of two people trying to figure it out uh so i think it's really interesting and kind of liberating perspective well and i you know to be a little bit generalistic um the english aren't known for expressing their emotions a lot so it could be an uncomfortable place you know what's your problem your 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 stiff upper lip put it back in place there damn it no absolutely and it's it's tricky to talk about because i think one of the things that i don't know if you saw there was this piece by heather havrileski in the new york times recently that that gave about her own marriage that gave a very um very bleak account of it i think i think a lot of people miss her tone and it's not quite as bleak as it seems but but it is difficult because if you talk about sort of any of these kind of relationship issues and not only romantic domestic relationships i mean all kinds of human relationships if you talk about the challenges that are involved in them the temptation is for other people is to say, well, you're just revealing that you've got a bad one, right? And um, right. I, I don't know anything about Heather Havleski's marriage, so I'm offer no judgment. But but um, what's so interesting about this perspective, I think about Bruce Tiff, Joseph Campbell talks about this quite a lot. Um, the idea that these upsides and downsides are just all part of engaging authentically with how things really are. Um, uh, I'm thinking also of that, uh, talk Alain de Botton gives called called why you will marry the wrong person you know um, mm-hmm. it, it's very liberating to be able to talk about it. and I don't think at all that the people who do talk about it are secretly revealing that they're no good at relationships I think they're revealing that they seeing the truth about the challenges of these things that you really have to open yourself to in order to get the benefits of them I think Instead of, again, this notion, which I'm, is there in the time management stuff as well, that we might somehow be able to maneuver ourselves through the right techniques into this kind of godlike status where nothing was ever a problem and, uh, and we could do everything without any um, negative emotions involved. Yeah, it, it's, for me, it harks back to this notion of imperfection and uh accepting our imperfections and accepting that having contrary emotions debate conflict are part of our the messiness of life yes and and yes, that it, we are striving for performance as we're geared to do at school to drive for higher numbers if you're a journalist for whatever article you're writing or mm-hmm. you know book sales or 
or in business, you know, more profitability. And it's all, it's all to what? Well, to get the next number. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, but we don't know actually to what it's for. I was, someone was telling me recently that uh, apparently 50% of recruits uh, at Apple in the United States are now non-college graduates. And they're absolutely doing that on purpose because they right. think that education is eating us down the wrong garden path. Interesting, yeah. Which make yes, makes you wonder what if how many people are pursuing those degrees solely to get to places like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, fascinating. So, in your book, Oliver, you talk about deep time, and I, I so I, I was. This is not a concept I'm familiar with. I I, I love learning about new things. Uh, could you explain to us what you were talking about when you wrote about deep time? Yeah, I think I am maybe adapting this for my own end. So I don't think anyone should worry about not being familiar with my definition of it because it may be a little bit customized. But I, I did borrow the phrase, in my case, from from the writer and priest Richard Raw, who 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 um, used it um, in a sort of related context. I think what I mean by that primarily is the sense of being in the flow of time in a way that does not involve the ticking clock, the sense of time running out, the sense of time as a resource that we have to steward, but rather that sort of sense of having successfully kind of entered the stream of time in a in that sort of full, full bodied and full hearted way. I don't think it's something we can aspire to do all the time. I think we need the standard day to day experience of time for all sorts of reasons. But I'm talking about um, something that I think most people are familiar with, if not from meditation, say, then from being at the birth of a baby or being uh, at the top of a mountain in the Alps or something. You know, there are all these kind of moments when we talk about things like time standing still. Uh, I think that's a legitimate way of, of talking about it as well. And I sort of sketch out the thought that I think that people in pre-industrial people would have spent, I think there's reason to believe they would have spent a lot more of their lives in this kind of mindset it's not without its downsides but i think it's really useful to remember that there is this other way of of existing in time i'm not sure it can ever be finally described properly in words or whether that's just an excuse for my not having managed to but uh but that's what i'm getting at yeah timeless time it, it, what it makes me think of and that's because that's how i roll it makes me think of of uh, psychedelics Right. And and how time just is warped, Salvador Dali-like, when you are in the middle of it. You, you're not experiencing time in all the same way right. as as maybe like uh, we doing in our work. And one of the so I I did have this sort of irritation when I was reading it at the beginning. Um, uh, it's good to provoke, right? Yeah. Um, this four thousand weeks, and like, well, that's great for you, Oliver, but. You know, you go along, you don't worry about time, but what about when you meet up with other people? And then finally you come onto this whole piece of <laughs> synchronization with the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found that, that sort of a resolution to my challenge with this, you, oh, you know, you have your 4,000 weeks, but then 
dealing with the rest of the world. So let's say in your surrounding, to what extent have you shared the 4,000 weeks as a principle of the relationships that you have with others, forgetting the synchronization of other elements, there's more tactical synchronizations of go to a pub and meet people and, and such like, or listen to the same thing, but you, th those elements of community. But to what extent have you sort of, through the book, I'm thinking, grafted a 4,000 week concept that you can share with others to explain how we can be in better sync? I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that question. So let me answer, and you can please interrupt and steer me into a different direction if, if I'm not going there. I mean, I think the, the essence of what I'm getting at in that portion of the book is just that one of the less obvious ways in which we are individually limited with respect to time. And it's obvious that we don't have very much of it uh, in our lives. It's obvious that uh, I think that, um, you know, we seek to do with it more than we ever possibly could. But one of the less obvious ways is that is that its value comes from being coordinated with other people's right. If you if if you have total control over how you spend the day, that's not much use if it if you can't if other people are not using it in ways that enable you to sort of have relationships with them to build businesses with them to go out drinking in the pub with them what you know all sorts of things politics marriage child rearing making money all of it requires that kind of synchronicity that you know there are people who have time for you when you have time for them um and so that's really just the sort of that's the way that fits into the bigger thing. I do think it's a, definitely one of the parts that is the biggest personal challenge for me. Uh, and certainly it has been the one of the more challenging parts of becoming a parent in the last few years is that sense that you, you really, and I wrote about this in one of my newsletters recently, you really don't want to adopt a me, an attitude towards time or to your schedule where your five-year-old son running into the room to tell you excitedly about his day at school where that is something going wrong with your time management plans right i mean people may have to because they may have certain jobs that they can't break off absolutely but like you don't want to voluntarily think about time as in it goes well if my plan for my day is exactly followed and it's gone wrong if somebody interrupts that because a large proportion of the ways in which people interrupt it can be lovely and beautiful or just useful for work or all sorts of different different things um and that's a perpetual tension for me because i don't think the answer is to abandon any attempt from to plan out the day as, as i want it to go i think the i think the way to do this is to be quite exacting and intentional about planning out the day and at the same time hold those intentions so loosely that um that I can give them up if it's the best thing to do to give them up. But that is a hard line to tread and I'm certainly not gonna claim I've got there. I don't know if any of that addressed. Well, yeah, it does what you entirely, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, we, we live with others and you talk about like child rearing. Well, you know, there, there's a, a very important moment where two people need to get together for that to happen, mm -hmm. to have the baby. And, you know, so there is, there are times, <laughs> but yet that yeah. if, you, if you plan that, it can be a little bit <laughs> left fraught with other challenges. Uh, uh, so I, I used to, uh, specifically with my team, I would say, 
that I only want to have half of my day as a senior, as a chief executive, want half of my day to be booked in meetings. Right. And I want the other half of my day to be free yeah. of meetings. And partly that was because I wanted to have time for strategic thought, time for me, mm -hmm. time for shit happens. Yeah. And time to, hey, listen, I got an idea. To, so to allow for serendipity, which could also include your five-year-old coming in, hey, pa, you know, have you heard about this? And yeah. I, did you hear what I did my day at school? Yeah. And, and, you, and you're not overly stressed. So it's a, I, I think in this, that is time management, because what I'm, I'm saying is these are things I don't want to do at some level. I yeah. choose to have 50% of my day in meetings because many people just suffer from meeting-itis. And one thing, you know, just running after there, I know have, they have... They just hope that they have time for the rest. You know that you know they they're not actually being you know explicit about how they how they deal with it. And the reason why I brought up this sort of whole zone was you talk about the joy of missing out, or this notion of choosing not to do things. And so, as I was what I was getting at at some level is you you have friends who you don't reply to, because you've chosen not to spend time doing that. Right. And not replying to an email or not replying to a communication because I don't have time for that doesn't fit into my 4,000 week philosophy or my my gist and making those harder decisions. I wanted to see how you go through that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's right. I think obviously when you put it like that, it makes me think like, wow, I sound really rude if I'm just sort of if I'm someone who doesn't respond to emails from friends or other things like that. I think. Um, and, you know, I do fail to respond to emails from friends for weeks at a time. I think that the, the point that I'm really wanting to emphasize there is that choices are being made and things are being neglected in your life all the time. That's just mm -hmm. a natural consequence of being finite, especially if you're someone with like lots of ambitions and interests for your life. Um, might be easier if you literally only wanted to do one thing with all your time, but few of us are like that. And that no means that, you know, at any moment, you're going to be neglecting uh, huge portions of things, missing out on potential experiences, relationships, business opportunities, whatever it might be. Um, and so it's really just a question of, again, becoming conscious that that is happening anyway, that there isn't a way to avoid those losses, those trade-offs. And then you get to make them more consciously. And then you get to do things like, for example, as I talk about in the book, um, to sort of ask tough questions about middling priorities, you know, ask about those kind of relationships and activities, hobbies, whatever it is that you don't totally love, but you are doing out of choice. And it might make more sense just to let them slide. And it seems kind of a bit jerkish to think like, well, you know, that's that one friend who, you know, yeah, it's okay. We meet up every month and it or two and it's okay like it seems a bit jerky to imagine just sort of cutting them loose and i don't and i don't recommend like sending them an email telling breaking up with them right but it's actually no more jerkish is it than just than than as a result of that being kind of than the result of having several such friendships in your life say being only half present for when your you're with them. dearest friends or for your right when you're with them or when you're or not really having the time for your closest friends or the other and your loved ones because you are because you you know two nights of every week you're out having drinks with people who you don't particularly care about having drinks with yeah and that's so, not good for you no either so something has got to give and yeah. it's just very and i think it's often a lot clearer when people are thinking in these terms it's often a lot clearer that 
which thing they think should give because a lot of the time we're struggling to get to that position where nothing has to give um and uh once you accept defeat in that realm i think you can do something much more constructive in the the realm of possibility and, and reality yeah yeah, uh, um, I interviewed someone called Becky Hall, who wrote a book which I highly recommend called "The Art of Enough," and oh, uh, sounds great. And, and something that you obviously speak about the essence of enough in your book, and, and understanding what is my essence, then to be able to qualify this is a worthwhile activity, this is a worthwhile friendship relationship. Yep. And I'm prepared to to do that. I I wonder in the in the notion of uh, you know, managing relationships like this. What kind of message would you uh, like for people to go about? And, and this is maybe politically incorrect with regard to relationships, with regard to time management, with regard to where they're working today. Mm -hmm. uh, would they, would you tell them, you know, stuff what you're doing and really figure out your, your bigger plan, the bigger essence? Uh, I don't think I'd tell them to stuff what they were doing. I think I'd say, I mean, here I'm borrowing slightly from Sam Harris, who's come up a couple of times, but he, he uh, I, f firstly, I would say, you know, you're not going to get to a point in life where you have no problems and you probably wouldn't want to get to that point because some problems are kind of great challenges and they improve you and you get to grow. So given that, you know, what problems could you accept right now in order to do the things that you that you really want to do? There is there is um, if if you have a if you have a plan for your life that is incompatible with who you're working for now or who you're in a relationship with now or something like that, there's already like something's already not right about that situation. The idea that you're going to get to a situation where you don't have to deal with any of those losses and you get to do these other things it's not going to happen i'm this is coming out a lot less uh, eloquent than i might have hoped but <laughs> my basic point would be i think you know um don't we're all waiting i think a lot of people anyway we're waiting to begin certain things or to go off on certain paths until like all our ducks are in a row or until the decks are cleared or until we've fixed ourselves or until something 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 and when you see on the most abstract sort of fundamental level how none of that is ever going to happen because that's to do with violating the terms and conditions of being a, a human being it, it's not that you might not improve in certain ways or get the decks a bit more clear or something it's just that like you're just putting something off that, that uh, for a moment of truth that will never actually arrive and if you see that it's suddenly incredibly liberating because i think then people think well okay you know, maybe now is as good a time as any to do the thing that I think I know I I want to do. Um, just to uh, finally, I guess, to put the same point in different words, um, this idea of what if you took the thing that bothers you the most about yourself that you're always trying to change? What if you just accepted that you were going to experience that until you until the end of your days? never get rid of it like what would that what would that open up what could you suddenly be like okay well maybe i'm just never going to feel on top of my emails and my work okay so what would it be really great to spend a few hours doing today if i didn't have to think that that 
struggle was had any point. I think that's very useful. I think that's really um, much more interesting than what am I going to do once I get all these things. Uh, yeah, very liberating. Out, out of the way. Yeah. So the last question for you, Oliver, um, and I, again, I'm going to borrow from Heidegger when, and I love that whole thing where you don't own time. Time is not something you have. It is something you are. And I wanted you to just react to a statement that I usually use and to what extent you agree with it or disagree. Um, I've always said that the way you approach time defines you. Yeah, I think I think I agree completely. Um, the reason it defines you is because what do we ever what do we ever do in life except approach time i mean it, it's um they're they're almost synonymous um how you relate to this moment but there's nothing outside of that um and so yeah i mean this is why i make the case in the book that this thing called time management that we have a tendency to think of in such a narrow sense um is it's all there is on on some level now as you say there i think also we don't have time and therefore managing it is a little bit of a, a misnomer we are time in that in the sense that we just exist in time and as time wow this is getting deep but mm -hmm. um and, and it's you can acknowledge that and and take account of all its ramifications or you can try to shield yourself from it and try to tell yourself that the real time is coming in the future that that if you get everything together you won't have to be bound by the um the constraints of time or the limitations of time so i think yeah i it's a long way of saying i agree with that uh, i agree with that uh, statement well Speaking of time, your time has come. Um, Oliver, absolute pleasure uh, shifting and, and chatting about this. Maybe very existential, but I, I've, I really feel it's something that whether you're in business, journalist, uh, at school, at, at all levels of life, it's worth exploring in different ways, of course, because the beginning you're sort of opening yourselves up to the chakras and the curiosity. And then little by little, you, you whittle down to be a little bit more precise, less hopeful and more strategic yeah. in the way you are, uh, the person you are. So um, naturally, I want uh, just a last plug. Um, you've got your newsletter. Uh, how would you like people to, where, where would you like to push people to get your book? Because I know not all outlets are the same. And uh, or how would they how would you like people to follow you uh, to sign up for your newsletter? I am super happy for people to get my book wherever they like to get books. The main thing is getting it. And then my website, oliverberkman.com, has a bunch of my writing. And that's where you can sign up for my newsletter, The Imperfectionist, as well. Yeah. And I really appreciated the fact that you did your own Audible. I know what that exercise is like. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's really fun to listen to the author's voice explaining it. Many, many thanks, Oliver. Uh, Tally-ho, and I look forward to staying in touch and certainly following what you're up to, because I love what you wrote. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service, and as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. 
You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodile.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
the Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.